Editor's note, The Daily Bruin updated the podcast on June 1st to remove a section which could be deemed as insensitive to our listeners. Hello, I'm Alan Humphreys. Welcome to DB Deep Dive, a new opinion podcast from The Daily Bruin that will offer in-depth perspectives on current events. Today we have a feature episode about the recent rise in hate crimes against the Asian American community. In the last year, Asian Americans, predominantly of East Asian descent, have faced increasing verbal and physical attacks amid the COVID-19 pandemic. This has made shopkeepers, restaurant workers, and even the elderly victims of violent assault. And in March, a shooting in Atlanta, Georgia took the lives of six Asian women. These tragedies stem from historical roots. Since coming to the US, Asian Americans have been scapegoated, fetishized, and othered, making it difficult for members of the community to feel seen and respected. May marks Asian American and Pacific Islander Heritage Month. To honor and to learn how to support the community, we will showcase the voices of students, AAPI activists, and professors of Asian American studies. Let's begin. Throughout 2020, the Trump administration propagated the idea that China was responsible for the outbreak of the COVID-19 pandemic. Many activists say the popularization of this idea led to attacks on Asian individuals, many of which were captured on social media. In response, the hashtag StopAsianHate movement, which raises awareness about how to combat anti-Asian hate, gained popularity. Caitlin Elkinton, a third-year public affairs major, is the external assistant director of the UCLA Asian Pacific Coalition, an advocacy group that addresses APIDA political and cultural issues. Caitlin, how have you been feeling in light of recent events? Um, that's definitely been something that's been impacting us personally and like manifesting in acts of violence towards our community. Um, people that I know, their parents have been like chased and harassed. Um, tenants that we work with in Chinatown have been chased and harassed. I've taken to not even going outside to check my mail without pepper spray on me. And even though I know it's only an illusion of safety, really, um, it has been really hard just trying to exist in public space as an Asian American right now. What are some things your organization has done to support the community? We are working on connecting community members with bystander intervention training and self-defense resources. And then um, for our collaborative project in May, May is Asian Pacific Islander History Month. Our community and our member organizations are collectively making this magazine that we're going to be printing and publishing and sending out. And there will be a tribute included in there somewhere because art's a very important way to heal, I think. Oh, and then one other sort of ongoing project, since we do want to emphasize the importance of not having like a one and done event to try to deal with these things, but that it's an ongoing process. And so we're developing, or we've been developing an ongoing partnership with Chinatown Community for Equitable Development um, in Los Angeles, sort of doing the more long-term work of helping people and elders in the AAPI community, especially within our um, local Southern California area. 
Alkinton believes such initiatives can help protect the immediate victims of the problems at hand. For more insight into the systems that have created violence against Asian Americans, Grace Hong, a professor of Asian American Studies and Gender Studies at UCLA, is here to offer some insight into the history of how Asians have been treated and perceived in this country. From the beginnings of Asian migration to the United States in the, in the 19th century, in the latter part of the 19th century, at that time, the majority of the uh, Asian people who were recruited to the United States were recruited to do a certain kind of very physical, you know, manual labor to build the infrastructure of the U.S. West Coast. Um, and so that's, you know, things like railroads and agriculture, you know, and and if there's any sort of image of Asian Americans in the national imaginary, one of them is going to be, you know, the Chinese building the railroad, right? And um, because of that, you know, it was largely working class men who were recruited to the United States. Um, and um, the small numbers of women who came to the United States, a number of them were, um, uh, in indentured servitude, you know, doing all sorts of different kinds of reproductive labor, including sex work. But that was entirely constituted by these circumstances that were made by the needs of U.S., you know, capital and, and U.S. laws. But the narrative was that, you know, Chinese women were just inherently, you know, sexually deviant, um, you know, there was all sorts of stereotypes about Chinese women like luring innocent white boys into their opium dens and their uh, brothels and things like that. And what did the United States government do to limit the immigration of Asian Americans legislatively? So the very first uh, race-based um, bar to immigration was the 1875 Page Act, which expressly barred um, Chinese women, right? So that was before the 1882 Chinese Exclusion Act that barred the majority of Chinese people, right? Um, even before that, the first one was ex especially uh, uh, a bar against Chinese women, right? So we can see that from the very beginnings, this was a very gendered as well as racialized set of um, stereotypes and representations around Asian women. There's this huge history of U.S. militarism, as well as many, many, many U.S. Army, Navy, military bases in a variety of strategic points all over the Pacific. Wherever there is military, right, there is military prostitution or military sex work. And so there is this image of, you know, Asian women as being sexually available, you know, sexually deviant, like I said, um, that uh, is produced out of, you know, U.S. needs for labor, U.S. imperialism, U.S. militarism, and that's sort of the larger context that we have to keep in mind. Were there any other narratives about Asians? Well, there is a, uh, a really, really major important cultural studies scholar named Edward Said, who in the 70s wrote this incredibly, incredibly important book called Orientalism. His argument is that 
all of Western, sort of modern Western conception of itself uh, is predicated on distinguishing itself from what, you know, was called the Orient, right? So um, all of sort of modern Western culture was about defining itself as, um, you know, a variety of things, masculine versus the Orient's, you know, femininity, uh, rational as opposed to the Orient's exotic, sort of irrational, sensuous, very sexualized, um, you know, sort of imaginary of the Orient. And this was a projection on the part of the quote unquote West. And it was a projection that sort of legitimated and made sense of the West's uh, colonial material uh, extraction of wealth and resources and things like that in the quote unquote Orient, right? Uh, European Orientalism, what, you know, early European Orientalism uh, was focused, you know, uh, in large part around what we would call the Middle East, right? Or, you know, uh, South Asia, right? India. American Orientalism, because of the fact of these U.S. wars in, in Asia, has just as much been about, you know, what we would call, quote unquote, East Asia or Southeast Asia, right? Um, and so a part of it is that what it means to, you know, be a citizen of the U.S. is very much imagined as not Asian or not Asia. Alongside these Orientalist narratives, stereotypes about Asians emerged in the U.S. Here is Karen Umamoto, the director's chair of the Asian American Studies Center at UCLA, who will help us examine how stereotypes about Asians have contributed to this modern culture of violence. So I think that, you know, in the current situation, we see more of the negative, uh, they're, they're both negative stereotypes, but if you look at the images on um, social media, some of them look almost exactly like some of the images that we saw during the yellow pair, what people call the yellow peril era in the late 1800s, where Chinese were painted as kind of the heathen of the earth. So it's um, really disturbing that there's such a similarity between some of the depictions today and the depictions back then. When people look at the events that have happened of late and the rising instances of anti-Asian hate, we only have to look at the history of Asian Americans in the U.S. to see a pattern of, of exclusion and this problem where Asian Americans have always been seen as a perpetual foreigner. So I think for many of us, even in our own life experiences, we've often felt that we're not fully accepted as full-fledged Americans in this country. Uh, we're asked questions like, oh, oh, where are you from? I mean, I mean, in Asia, where are you from? And, you know, you, you speak pretty good English and things like that. So I think there's always this kind of assumption that if you have an Asian face, you're not of this place, all right? You're not of this country.
Now we return to Grace Hong, professor of Asian American Studies and Gender Studies. Professor, how have racial and gender stereotypes intersected in the history of Asian American communities? Uh, in the late 19th century, there were all sorts of definitions and redefinitions of masculinity, femininity, what sexual normativity meant, all sorts of things like that for everyone, not just, you know, people of color or for Asians, right? So there was this sense of men, you know, working in the public sphere and women sort of being in the private sphere and, you know, uh, understandings of Victorian uh, notions of domesticity, right? And, you know, what it meant to be sort of a proper woman and a proper man uh, were being shaped at the time. And very much so what it meant to be, you know, a proper, respectable, masculine person at the time was defined against, you know, Chinese men and Chinese women, right? Um, and, you know, and Asian men and Asian women in particular, or, or in general, right? So this was for sort of elite upper class men and middle class people, um, but also for the, you know, developing working class white identity, right? So in that era, uh, there was a lot of agitation against uh, Chinese immigration from working class whites who thought of Chinese immigrants as undercutting them and, and whatnot, right? So at the time, racial identity, you know, white racial identity in particular, was constituted um, to separate the working class from each other, right? So, you know, white working class men and, you know, Chinese working class men often did similar kinds of work. Um, but, you know, the white working class men organized around their whiteness, right, and thought of the Chinese as competition. The history of gendered stereotypes are reflected in many recent tragedies of gendered violence, such as the Atlanta shooting of six Asian women in March. The murderer, who told police he had a sex addiction, went to multiple Asian-run massage parlors to kill their workers, believing he was doing a service towards others like himself. To offer insight on what many Asian women face within a culture of fetishization, here is Esther Lim, the Organizing and Civic Engagement Director of Asian Americans Advancing Justice, Atlanta. I think it's deeply traumatized a lot of women I know, on a very personal level, right? Just the way that they've been forced to interact with the world as a result of that, that fetish. Right? Like, I've literally been told by someone that I look like I've been cut out of a fetish magazine. And of course, they like, they were like, no offense, please don't take this in any kind of bad way. As if it was a compliment. And I mean, like, it just, it makes things more dangerous for women, for East Asian women and for Southeast Asian women. It, like, being subject to that kind of gendered, racialized violence again and again since such a young age, because it starts young, right? I was barely 10 years old before when I realized that that was a thing, right? And I know that a lot of other women I know can echo that statement. What are some things society can do to potentially address this issue? Honestly, that is a larger conversation about gender as a whole, right? Like, how do we treat women and any country in any culture, right? Like, how do we treat femmes? How do we treat people that are vulnerable? And why is it so acceptable for us to be so deeply disrespectful, 
right? And why is it so acceptable for us to commodify and dehumanize people on a regular basis, not just with East Asian women, but with shit, women across the board and like any marginalized community, right? Like we're only worth what we can provide. If you want to be an ally to Asian women, to women, any marginalized community, like look internally, right? Like the level of internal reflection that I have not been seeing since this has happened, right? And the way that I've seen men just feel so comfortable taking the mic at these actions, right? Like is just so infuriating to me, right? When there are other women who are perfectly capable of speaking to this incredible tragedy, right? And when this entire conversation should be centered on the intersections of class, sex work, and Asian identity, and womanhood, or femhood, whatever you want to call it, right? Like, somehow, these East Asian men are still being centered, right? And why is that acceptable to us? For many in the Asian American community, this moment is an amalgamation of many terrible emotions. Whether it's the fear for the safety of their loved ones, or a motivation to seek justice for the harm that has been done. Though many attacks are rooted in hate and discrimination, obstacles prevent them from being classified as hate crime law. We will now hear from Esther Lim, an AAPI activist in Los Angeles. It is important to note that she is different from the prior activist from Georgia with the identical name. This Esther Lim is the creator of the How to Report a Hate Crime booklet, a tool that informs community members about what they can do for themselves or for others when experiencing or witnessing an anti-Asian hate crime. She tells us about the implementation gaps in hate crime law across the U.S. What's been really challenging for me is that there are so many states within our nation, right? But within each state is a different penal code of hate crimes and how to um, process it. And sometimes within each state, within each county, is a different process of how to take in hate crime reports or hate incident reports. So for example, California, we have at least 130 counties. And California in general, yes, we do have a penal code, but each county has a different process. There's no nationwide um, hotline or a hate crimes task force for people to call in and make easy phone calls to make in reports of hate incidents or hate crimes. Another example is, for example, Oregon State. They have a statewide hate crimes task force and it's a statewide hotline for people to call in get directed to a translator if needed, and to make a report. And then another state that does that exceptionally well is New York State. Although they have currently one of the highest reported hate crime data, but they do have a statewide hate crimes task force where a lot of other states lack. Right now, 10 out of the mainland 50 states of the United States have hate crime laws but don't require data reporting. And then 
there are three out of the mainland United States that don't have any hate crime laws and don't require data reporting. So if you think about it, at the end of the day, there are 13 states in the mainland besides like Guam and Hawaii that not that they don't matter, but just within our territory where we can get a better grasp on numbers is 13 out of 50 states don't require data collecting for hate crime reports. That means that's 26% of the nation not having the correct data reported to the federal government. And that means that obviously, if there's no report, that means our government thinks that there's no issue. What exactly is making it so hard to classify these incidents as hate crimes? That's exactly the same question I asked to the Department of Justice. (laughs) Um, And we've had this conversation multiple times. And what they say is hard to determine is because, like I said, with the difficulty of each county having their own process within their own state of data reporting, right? And then it also comes into play with the difficulty of having a set standard for even each state or each county of how to classify these reports as hate crimes instead of assaults. What they've told me is that it's better that an actual crime or assault is even reported to still have investment allocated into that target community. And it frustrates me because when I made this booklet, I pulled from our our government's resources basically, and they still don't have a clarified answer of it either. And what they're stating to me is that each county, each law enforcement agency has a different classification of determining whether an incident or crime is an assault or an actual hate crime. So I do think that there needs to be set standards and regulations and definitions set by our government to clarify this issue and this confusion because even me, I'm confused as well as how each county or a law enforcement agency determines classifying it from a hate crime versus an assault. Do you see any drawbacks in the fight for hate crime reform? For one, I think the biggest deterrent in reporting hate crimes or even hate incidents is that a lot of these minority groups are afraid of deportation and the Department of Justice and they do not ask any victim or witness of any crime for their immigration status. And there's a special section in LAPD's police force that they're not allowed to ask for that either. The officers will be penalized for it because The main reason for that is that our state and federal government want proper reporting done and they don't want any deterrent factor of people being afraid to report just because of their immigration status 
they'd rather have that report essential to them over any like fear of deportation. So I think that's one deterrent is just do not be afraid of reporting if you are not a citizen of the United States. And secondly, is that with the Asian community, we're mostly very prideful, I'd say. And so with any harm that comes towards them, I think they find it shameful. And I want people to know, although the situation might be shameful to them, might be quite embarrassing, but at the end of the day, that is injustice being done to them. And that is not how any human should be treated. So it's speaking up for yourself, telling people what was done to you was not right. And the thing is that if they harmed you, it's okay because there's a whole community standing behind you if you just speak up. The reforming of hate crime law is a potential step towards giving victims and their families a sense of justice in the system. But Esther Lim at Asian Americans Advancing Justice Atlanta, who uses they-them pronouns, feels it may not be the most worthwhile fight. Here, they question whether the focus on hate crime law reform is the best priority. Personally, I don't know if I even care about that. Like, I don't need them to validate that this was hate. Like, that is something that I know in my soul. That is something that a lot of us know in our souls, right? And I personally don't believe in carceral solutions to violence. I don't think it actually resolves anything. I think it just traumatizes people further and makes them more likely to continue, like, violent paths, right? Because it isolates people. And when people are isolated, they become even more <sighs> gnarled, I guess. I don't know. And there's research like reinforcing that. And I think calling this a hate crime would just lead the conversation into a more carceral direction, right? Not even calling it, categorizing it legally as a hate crime would just take this in a more carceral direction, right? And like, I don't care to do that. I want solutions that are actually transformative. I want solutions that are legitimately going to prevent this from happening ever again, right? That can actually let us be safe in this world and like give our fucking people a chance to find peace and thrive, right? And not just ours, everybody's, right? And like, it is the nature of criminal justice where if they do decide to criminalize something, that criminality ends up on the backs of other black and brown folks, right? White people are always the exception. We've explored the immigration narratives, the roots of stereotypes on race and gender, and the debates in and around hate crime law. At this moment, there is a need for concrete solutions that can lead to transformative cultural change. Esther Lim at Asian Americans Advancing Justice Atlanta is also an advocate for language equity, the push to include a diverse scope of languages in social and educational infrastructures. Their organizing work helped increase voter turnout among Asian American voters in Georgia, and they believe language accessibility, or access to information in one's own language, is the key to unlocking Asian Americans' voting power. The number of resources that people have 
access to, right? The amount of power, all of these things. The communities that we work with every day have absolutely no idea that any of this exists, right? Because they don't have access to it. There's no language equity. Every piece of information that I have had to deal with and wanted to bring into community, right? Whether it's conversations around transformative justice, conversation, even just like canvassing for issue surfacing purposes, right? Like if I wanna go out into the community and be like, hey, what are your struggles, right? I have to do that in like 16 different languages. Now take that to like a medical level, right? These things are available, you know, they could provide interpretation. It's not for lack of resources. Right. And they're actually legally mandated to provide interpretation if asked. Right. But people don't know that. Could you speak about how barriers in language accessibility have made the process of voting more difficult for non-English speakers? Even last year, like the pandemic was a huge hit on our civic engagement program. So our voter turnout stuff. And so we made videos in language describing step-by-step how to fill out your absentee ballot application, where you can track it, right? And then when you should be receiving it, who to call if you don't, right? And then who to call if you don't and you need in-language help, right? And then when you do receive it, different resources that you can look at for in-language information on the candidates, right? So like, we can do it. Right. Whether I want to, it's a different question altogether. Right. Um, And I mean, the sad thing is, I don't actually know that Asian Americans, broadly speaking, are really aware of just what like what just happened. Also, because that information is not available in language. Right. We try to the best of our abilities to disseminate that information, whatever um, funnels we have access to. And still, there will always be facets of the community that don't have access to that information and that's just it sucks and i just know that it's gonna suck next year when we're trying to get people revved up for the 2022 elections right to see them encounter even more barriers right to them voting like going to vote in and of itself is a barrier for a lot of folks right like whether you don't have transportation don't have access to an adequate interpreter Um, don't have access to any of the information on the candidate, what have you, right? Like, add in all of these weird legal stipulations, all of these requirements around proving your citizenship, all of these really scary things, honestly. What do you think is the key to progressive mobilization in Georgia? So the single most important thing to me as an organizer is leadership development. I make it a very intentional part of all of our programming to identify new leaders, right? Or identify leadership amongst all of the people that we work with, right? Different forms, albeit, but nevertheless, um, because that's essentially what's going to keep us moving forward, right? Like, I am exhausted, you know, like, I'm not even that old and I'm tired, right? I need somebody to pass this torch on to, Right. Um, And like that, that's also how movements proliferate. And I also don't think I have all of the answers. Like I would love for more people to join that conversation and come up with new visions, new solutions. Like revolution is entirely based in like your capacity towards imagination. 
like your ability to imagine better, something beyond the carceral systems, beyond the pain that we face on a day-to-day basis, right? And then working towards that beyond and embodying it in every way you can, right? That's that's what I want to see. I want to see leaders who are capable of doing that on a massive level in Georgia, right? And it's happening. You know, we're seeing more and more Asian American leaders pop up like everywhere, dude. Like Asian American elders, I would have never imagined would be interested in this work are now involved. When it comes to considering how college campuses like UCLA can effectively stand up for the AAPI community, Asian American Studies professor Hong said that many of the problems faced by the community are only exacerbated by policing, adding that the university should abolish its campus police. So there's this big movement going on right now across campuses, UCLA, but you know, across the UCs, Cal States, across the country, toward um, you know, uh, getting cops off campus and investing the money that is used for cops into other sorts of things that campus and surrounding communities need more. So while that's not only specific to Asian American communities, it is so, so important. Like think about the money there would be for retention programs, for non-punitive survivor-centered sexual violence response and prevention, for recruitment and retention of faculty of color and Asian American faculty. Professor Hong said policing in America aggravates the issues faced by the AAPI community further, as it may continue to neglect the harm experienced by seniors and would take from resources that could be spent towards necessary community infrastructure. Asian American Studies professor Karen Umemoto said a lot of the violence is perpetrated by people who are grappling with their own mental health issues. She believes adequately serving those in need of mental health services would immediately help this problem much more than anything involving policing. Asian American Studies professor Karen Umemoto is an advocate for making Asian American Studies more accessible, and explains what it can do to make a more empathetic society. I think there are a couple things that can be done that would make a big difference in um, quelling racial violence. One is education. I think education is one of the most fundamental solutions to this problem of people seeing Asians as the perpetual foreigner and really not understanding or appreciating um, the over what um, 200 year history of Asians in the US from the early uh, early 1800s to the present. Many schools are considering uh, integrating Asian American studies and a movement that should be supported. So for example, the Los Angeles Unified School District is considering creating an Asian American studies course that could qualify as a graduation requirement for high school students. Um, The California State University system passed an ethnic studies requirement for all uh, students Um, graduating from a CSU campus. I think um, at a national level, 
we really need uh, to integrate the histories, cultures, contributions, and struggles of Asian Americans fully into the curriculum, across the curriculum from, you know, history and social studies uh, to arts and humanities. I think when people can understand and be educated on our experiences, it's harder to otherize us, right? To marginalize us, uh, to, uh, to, and it forces a certain kind of recognition and hopefully appreciation of Asians in America. And I think this extends to Pacific Islanders. And I think that's an important point that, um, you know, Pacific Islanders have also come under the wrath uh, during this period of anti-Asian hate. And there's even less understanding of Pacific Islander history um, in the US, whereas US um, military involvement in the Pacific has, um, you know, changed the trajectory of history for, for many of those nations. Um, and including the, the illegal overthrow of the Hawaiian kingdom and, um, and Hawaiians both in Hawaii as well as the, the larger diaspora. So there's so much to learn, um, so little in the curriculum today, but we do have the knowledge. We just need to have the support to translate that knowledge into really engaging, humanizing curricula. Are there any barriers to making Asian American studies more accessible? We fought for, for example, we fought for Asian American studies uh, in the 1960s. And we've had 50 years of scholarship on Asian Americans. But most of that scholarship sits behind paywalls, right, of libraries and publishers and really hasn't gotten out to the general public so that the general public still knows very, very little about Asian American history, culture, contributions, struggles, and um, uh, contemporary issues facing our communities today. So if you don't know a people, if you don't know the differences even between different Asian American and Pacific Islander groups, then, um, you know, you don't gain that appreciation for the diversity and for the lives um, that people are living, right? Even, even next door. What is your department doing to help increase access to Asian American scholarship? Um, one thing that we're trying to do is uh, create an Asian American studies multimedia textbook under the tagline Asian American Studies in Every Home, which would be a free online, uh, accessible from any internet connection, available on any phone, tablet, or desktop computer curricula that where people can read almost like a novel, right? Almost like a textbook um, that's engaging, that has multimedia, um, features to it, timelines, videos, podcasts, oral histories, um, slide decks and things really to uh, let people have a full immersion experience, right? In, in Asian American history, culture, um, contributions and um, 
and struggles anywhere in the world. I mean, wouldn't that be wonderful? We have 50 years, you know, Asian American Studies, our center was part of the first wave of programs that came out of the students' struggles of the 1960s. We come back to Esther Lim of Los Angeles to learn about her How to Report a Hate Crime booklet. The booklet informs people of their rights, resources, and reporting mechanisms in multiple languages. The content also varies depending on geographic areas. She explains her inspiration for the booklet. So when COVID hit and it was classified as a pandemic, I became worried for my parents' safety um, because they are um, foreign immigrants, obviously. They came from Korea and when they got to America to live for this American dream, they had just a lot of reckoning um, to process because They've come into a lot of hate incidents and just um, people who verbally attacked them because of their race. And um, it struck my core because if they already went through this in the beginning of when they got here in probably the late 70s, early 80s, I didn't want them to go through the same process again because of COVID. And I knew that this spark of just, um, what do you call the term? It's just like, um, it's falsified truths um, of COVID, of how it started and where it stemmed from that caused, um, stigmatism and then stigmatism caused xenophobia and then xenophobia racism and it was a validation for people who already felt some type of way in a negative aspect towards the Asian community to act upon it and validate their reasonings of not liking us because of COVID to behave the way they're acting now and it is causing harm. So I started beginning this process of um, researching February and with any special project that I do, I give myself two to three months of a deadline and um I created the first PDF version of the Korean booklet in April of 2020. And later on, after I posted it on Instagram, um, my Chinese and Japanese community in Monterey Park were like, they're like, oh, we want this in our language too. Can you make one for us? I was like, sure, just please translate it. So they did that for me. It was a lot of friends and you know volunteers and then um, this year um, it became and sprung into fruition of um, Vietnamese, Thai, Tagalog, English and I mean English only and then Spanish. What impact do you hope for these booklets to have? Um, I think it's just important to have because 
I think the majority of the issue in underreporting or getting the correct information is the language barrier. And if we kind of destruct that one element, I don't think it would be much of an issue of data collecting. Hopefully not, because then people will know their rights, they'll know what to do in an event of an attack and follow up. But yeah, that's basically it. In the final section of this podcast, we'll listen to our sources on how listeners can take action or find hope in this time. First up, Caitlin Elkinton from the Asian Pacific Coalition. There's this great organization called Hollaback that has um, free bystander intervention trainings that people can just sign on to do. And I think that's super useful because, well, one, it's applicable in lots of situations, but two, it's nice knowing that if a situation should arise, like knowing that people are ready to say something about it, because I think the main crushing point is the feeling that people don't care. And so I think people equipping themselves to be ready to not only care, but also do something and intervene, that's a great one. And then getting involved in, I think, the long-term work within sort of these Asian American ethnic enclaves. There are Chinatowns everywhere and a lot of them are not doing so well during this time. Like the small businesses are not thriving. A lot of like LA Chinatown in particular is mostly occupied by elders who are not really feeling safe going outside and also often having trouble paying for their expenses at this time because of the aforementioned problems with the businesses and with work. So volunteering at those sort of long-term organizations and seeing just what they need. And a lot of it's, there's a very broad range of things you can do, like things you can do involve just like making phone calls to elders to see if there are any needs that they have that people can help support, like in getting masks and stuff like that, or getting vaccinations. Like that's stuff that we've been working on. Next, Asian American Studies professor Umemoto tells us the merits of exploring artwork that showcases Asian stories. I think promoting the kinds of humanizing media, whether it's films, arts, many of the dance, theater, ways to convey the Asian American experience to others. I think many of the cultural nights that the students engage in can help do that, but maybe think about themes around the history of Asian American exclusion and racial violence. Um, not just against Asians, but against other people in general. I mean, I think there's a there's an existential question, right, that we're all trying to figure out right now is what kind of what kind of society do we want to be? What is our calling at this moment in history? And what are we positioned to do, right, as academics, as students, as members of our families and communities, with the privilege of being at UCLA? You know, what what is it that affords us? What options does that afford us to pursue? AAPI activist Esther Lim of Georgia tells us what gives them hope as a queer organizer in the South. 
So speaking very personally, like I identify as queer, non-binary, all of that good stuff. And growing up here, it was really, really hard to accept that about myself, right? Because especially in the Korean community, it's very much super Christian, right? And super cishet in the Southeast, at least. So when I came back, I actually came back to this organization that is led by a queer Korean femme. And together we were able to pull together a bunch of different community members and start this thing called ATL Q&A, the queer and Asian community. And it's just been, for me, such a healing space to be able to have this space, this really dope as fuck radical space in the middle of the goddamn deep South, right? Where all of these nerdy ass queers can come together and like talk about our shit and be in joy together, right? And like all of us are engaged in activism in one way or another, right? But this space is specifically about creating joy and holding one another in community. Like that's the shit that I live for. That's the shit that keeps me in movement. And that's the shit that I really wanna see more of. And lastly, Esther Lim of Los Angeles gives some valuable advice on what it takes to be an activist. For people who are wanting to be activists, it comes naturally. So if you see something happen and it's not justified, and if you speak up for it, it implies that you have a good soul, you know what morals are, you know how to conduct yourselves in society and to not stand for it. And standing up for it is a huge feat and I would call you an activist. So. I would keep saying not to be afraid because your bravery will show one day and it would speak light onto a lot of people. Today, attacks against Asian Americans continue to surge, contributing to an ever-growing fear amongst the AAPI community. According to the Pew Research Center, 81% of AAPI adults feel that violence against them is increasing, with 45% of Asian adults attesting to having experienced verbal or physical confrontation. This trajectory has moved lawmakers in Washington to pass an anti-Asian hate crimes bill, which directs how the Department of Justice collects data related to hate crimes. The bill has been opposed by numerous AAPI activist groups for being insufficient in how it addresses the root causes of anti-Asian violence. They argue that it would be more effective to invest resources into the needs of the AAPI community, such as housing and mental health support. Activists are keen on ensuring that these changes are included to more effectively support Asians in this country. Thanks for listening to this episode of DB Deep Dive. Keep up with our podcast through Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or SoundCloud and catch our next episode. And be sure to visit dailybruin.com to join the conversation, access show notes, and discover more UCLA news. This podcast episode was directed and hosted by Alan Humphreys. This episode was produced by Jamie Jung and Anna Syed. This episode was written by Alan Humphreys. The sound engineers for this podcast were Rabia Sumar, 
Jamie Jiang, and Alan